It was the early 1990s in a fraternity basement. The, the, the lights were all blacklight. There was music thundering, all sorts of late teen, early 20s, people mingling around, kind of goth, kind of pre-steampunk vibe. There's, there's, the floors are sticky with natural light. It's disgusting in there. And in the distance, you can hear a girl retching in one of the bathrooms. It was a frat party. And there in the middle of it was Mark, the brand new Christian, on top of a table, preaching the gospel of Jesus to everybody. It wasn't a big hit. Uh, but what was interesting is a month later, Mark decided he wasn't a Christian after all. And those who knew him said they weren't surprised. It's something many of us have seen where somebody seems to come to faith and get really excited about Christianity and then just as quickly walks away. It's something we've seen. It's something that Jesus saw in his own ministry. And he told us to expect it. And he explained it to us. Now, fair warning, I first preached this passage 12 years ago. And at the time, I made a note that I had borrowed very heavily from Tim Keller. And since that time, I have preached this passage several more times, and each time, chopped it up, moved it around, thrown out chunks, added new chunks, swapped out illustrations. But I still really have no idea how much of this was originally Tim Keller's stuff. So I'm just going to uh, uh, throw that out there uh, in the interest of fairness. But um, I have talked to Tim Keller, and... And I want you to know that if you ever hear a sermon of his that sounds a lot like this, I have given him permission to use any of my material that he needs. <laughs> right now where we are going through the gospel according to Luke, Jesus has now been called the devil. Religious leaders are actively plotting his murder. His followers had assumed that the Messiah would come and conquer, but things aren't happening like that. Um, they're wondering why people aren't all following Jesus. And if Jesus came to do more than just offer forgiveness, and he came to bring about cosmic restoration, to reconcile our lives to God, to heal every kind of alienation and brokenness and every dimension of human life, socially, spiritually, culturally, physically, emotionally, racially, psychologically, if he came to do all of that, then how does that kingdom come? How do I enter? How can I know I'm in it? How can I have that kind of power coursing through my life? We're going to read the gospel according to Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along as I read. This is God's gospel. After this, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the, only ma the, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Side note, someday I'm going to preach just that part of the passage. Because it's pretty amazing uh, who bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. Continuing on, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, 
It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him of what the parable meant. And he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as uh, they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. What is Jesus telling us here? Firstly, Jesus is telling us that my kingdom comes differently than other kingdoms. My kingdom, he says, comes through hearing. The seed on the soil, he says, stands for those who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. He says, those who hear the word. The seed is the message of Jesus. The kingdom comes not to those who, who can gain a hearing, but rather to those who know how to listen, to listen well, to listen deeply, to realize the implications, to understand, and to have the ability to, to sit down and take in what another is saying. My kingdom comes through hearing, and without it, kingdom power cannot come into your life. Compare this with how other kingdoms come. You know, think of how Rome came through coercion and force, overpowering others so that they had no choice, smashing your enemies, crushing their weapons, destroying their cities, threatening people, making promises, enslaving some people, ex executing others. Uh, you know, even today, you know, how do we think change happens? It, it happens through external coercion and force. We do pickets and protests and boycotts and marketing campaigns to get people to do what we want, always trying to gain a hearing to, be, to, to make people do stuff, good stuff or, or not good stuff. Why doesn't Jesus do a press conference? Why doesn't he get the marketing people on this? Why doesn't he get in front of the cameras and do some miracles? Why, why, why not? Because that's not how his kingdom comes. He says, my kingdom comes not by making yourself heard. My kingdom comes by hearing. Think of the impact on a field. It's the difference between a bulldozer and a seed. A bulldozer is a big piece of machinery. We've got a slide. Could we get that first slide? I think we've got that. Yeah, that, this is actually the, uh, the um, um, uh, uh, Plateau Reclamation Area in central China. A bulldozer can do a lot. 
A bulldozer is big machinery. It can overwhelm the field. It can scrape away the field. It can push dirt from one end of the field to the other, but it's only hitting the surface. Compare this to what a seed can do. We've got that next slide. Same location. It just needed seed. Tiny, almost invisible, but it works its way down below the surface, quietly beginning on the inside, underground first, inside out, and over time, no one notices it. You can't watch it grow, but a tiny shoot does pop up, and then it starts to multiply. And before long, you've got a field that's been transformed, and it's lush and alive and green and vibrant, and the, the, the seed transforms it by rechanneling its energies to create a life-giving garden, alive and growing. My kingdom, Jesus says, doesn't come like other kingdoms. To those who hear and understand, my message will get deep inside of you, and it will transform you. Okay, so what's up with the four soils? The soils are different kinds of hearts. You know, when the Romans came to town, you knew it. There were banners, there were marching, there were yeah, lots of noise and trumpets and incense and, and images of, of Caesar, but, but the kingdom of Jesus is different. Um, it's easy to miss it. It's, it's subtle. Some who think they are in the kingdom are not, and some who think they're not in the kingdom actually are. And Jesus is saying that some of you think you've heard me, but you haven't. You haven't heard me yet. And so I want you to consider where your heart might actually be right now. In ancient farming, the basic technique, they didn't, you know, row little, you know, little lines and plop little seeds in. They didn't have equipment to do that. The basic way that they farmed was they just took a bag of seed and they scattered it everywhere, everywhere on their land. And so it, some of it landed on good soil. Some of it would land on a hardened path that people packed down by walking. Some of it would land on, on thin soil that's just barely covering the underlying bedrock and different things would happen. First, there's the rock, the, the seed that, that landed on the path and realize these, these, these different soils are different hearts, different people. The path is hearing Jesus with a hard heart. He says, those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Uh, it only hits the surface because it's on a hardened, packed-down path. It never penetrates the soil. Uh, the soil is such that it's unreceptive to the message of Jesus. You might be in contact with the message all the time, but it's never going to break through. It can't break through because the hard heart is there. Uh, and any affirmation of Christianity would be only intellectual. Um, Keller asks, you know, whether the message of Jesus has, has ever taken you under its power. Has there ever been a time when the Christian faith began to dawn on you and you began to see things about yourself that maybe you didn't like but you had never seen before? Has there ever been a time when you felt like you were waking up from sleep uh, as, if to, as if the truth had, had never been known to you before, uh, when, as, as if it had your name on it? Uh, and you could say, this is, this is talking about me. I need this. This is all true. Uh, have you ever sensed the gospel thrilling you? 
the truth had you by the throat like it was picking you up. If it's only intellectual, if it's only theoretical, and it's never broken the surface, it's the hard path, a hard heart that isn't open to receive the message of Jesus and cannot therefore be saved. The second is the soil on, or the seed that fell on rock. That's thin soil just covering the bedrock. They receive the word with joy, Jesus says, when they hear it, but they have no root. You see, it's, it's only emotional. They receive it with joy. They can be very excited about Christ. Not, it's not just theoretical here. And there's apparent early growth, but there's no, no, there's no, there's no roots because it's shallow soil, so the sun burns everything on top of that rock. He, Jesus says they believe me for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. You see, troubles come, and you realize that Christ and being reconciled with God and walking with God is not the thing that you really want most in life. What you really want is something else. It could be a career, it could be a relationship, it could be uh, uh, having people think about you a certain way or being seen in a certain way. It could be, you know, power control, all sorts of stuff, personal pleasure. And, and you thought for a moment that Jesus could help you get that because he's a miracle-giving Savior. And yet when suffering comes, you walk away from Jesus because his only purpose was to give you what you wanted. And that's your real Savior. And that's your real God. You wanted a blesser not a savior. You wanted relief, not salvation. You wanted a service provider, not a Lord. You thought yourself a sufferer in need of a solution, and in fact you were a sinner in need of a savior. Think of the contrast. Many of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She was the beautiful 19-year-old, much-adored home, home, homecoming queen, and she was out one afternoon at a, at, a, at a swimming hole with her friends and she went up to the top and she dove in and the water was too shallow and it stabbed her spine and she became a quadriplegic, permanently paralyzed from the neck down. She spent her life, all these decades, in a wheelchair. She says this, if Jesus is Lord, then I can sit in this wheelchair. He's the Lord. He's in charge. He's the one who writes my story. If he will be glorified by this chair, then I'm okay with it because I have Jesus. It's so different. See, these first two types of soil, these types of hearts, they're not Christians. Most commentaries agree on that much. There's no repentance. Um, you know, the, the next one, though, is less clear. The third one is the thorny soil. And thorny soil is hearing Jesus with a divided heart. The, the, the seed enters the soil and it really gets in the soil. It goes down and it takes root. But it, it, Jesus says it does not mature. It bears no fruit. The first two soils, see, they didn't want Jesus. Uh, they, they, they wanted something else. The third soil, the third, third thorny soil, does want Jesus and something else. The first two are happy with the world. The final soil is happy with Jesus, but this thorny soil wants them both, and therefore this is the only soil that is miserable. It's miserable because the heart can't have it both ways. Jesus says it is choked. This is the divided heart. You want to trust Jesus, but your heart is attached to other things too. The worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth, Jesus talks about. 
And so you don't find yourself growing in Christ. You don't see life change coming year to year. Your relationship with God is choked by unhealthy priorities. The power of God is not coursing through your life. You really don't have joy. You really don't have peace. You aren't really sure whether you're a Christian. You're always going to be filled with doubt. Jesus says these are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Perhaps you've come to Jesus genuinely seeking a Savior, but you haven't yet grasped that the only way to be whole and not miserable is to give lordship over every single area of your life to Jesus Christ with no exceptions, no footnotes, no fine print. You know, that means your career. That means your sexuality. That means your thought life. That means your internet usage. That means how you spend your time. That means your priorities, how you talk about other people, how you treat your enemies, how you treat the poor. It means everything. Otherwise, your soul is choked. It's a divided heart. You're trapped. You can't abandon Jesus, but you can't be happy with all these other things that you want in your life, and so you're stuck. You can't go forward. You can't go backward. It's a divided heart. And of the four soils, you alone are miserable. C.H. Spurgeon said, you, you can't fall off the boat, but you can fall on the boat, break all your bones, and spend the entire journey in the infirmary. But lastly, we come to the fourth soil. This he calls the good soil. It's the soil that hears Jesus with a willing heart. There's incredible fullness here. There's unending blessing. That's a heart that, that hears the message and comes alive. And when troubles come, it, it only makes the faith stronger in the end. It thrives. You parents know the difference, especially you with, with young children and actually or, or older children. You know the difference when your child obeys willingly. Do you have a willing heart toward God? Or are you torn and therefore miserable? What kind of soil are you? How receptive are you to the message of Jesus? What can you do if you don't like the answer to that question? If you're sitting here freaking out thinking, oh my gosh, I'm the third soil. What you can do is you can listen to the seed. The seed is the message of Jesus. He comes like a seed in the ground, weak at first and vulnerable. He, he comes gently like a seed in the earth. It's a, it's a crazy message that a king came from heaven to earth. He triumphed by being tortured, by absorbing the judgment of God into his very body so that you won't have to face it and dying a shameful death so that you can die and be resurrected. And he, like a seed, was planted in the ground, so he was planted in the ground three days and rose alive and ready to pour that life into anyone who comes to him with the empty hands of faith. How many times have I heard people say, you know, when I first joined this church, I agreed with all the vows, but I don't even know that I was a Christian yet because something's happened inside of them where the gospel has suddenly captivated them. It's captured their heart. They've realized it's the only one absolute thing that we absolutely have to rely on, the only thing that will take us into the coming age. And that Jesus loves us and clothes us and washes us and that God our Father sings over us in song because he delights in us. 
listen to the seed. And now Jesus is also the gardener. He can prepare the soil. He can melt your heart and make it warm, pliable, and willing. You'll see parched earth coming to life and once barren lives bearing fruit. Oh, that's the power of the gardener. That's the power of the seed, the power of Jesus. Friends, listen to the seed. Look at it. Look at Jesus. Hear him until his words crack through the soil and starts working inside of you because he loves you and he doesn't want you to be miserable in the, in the face of the very worst hardship. He wants to be your joy. I've shared before years ago uh, the story of Festo Cavendry in his book Revolutionary Love. Festo was the uh, Anglican bishop in East Africa between 1972 and 1988. He tells his story. I think we've got his photo. There he is. What a shock I had when I reached home. My eagerness to arrive had made the dust and bumps of the long journey seem like nothing. So I was definitely unprepared for the situation I found as the old lorry I was riding in pulled into Rukungiri, my hometown in western Uganda. It was 1939. I was 19 years old, and I was coming home with the ink barely dry on my teaching certificate. I had been given my first teaching position in the very boys' school I had myself attended. That pleased me. At least it would be a start, and I would have money in my pocket. The first ugly surprise came when the truck rounded the marketplace. A crowd had gathered around some people who were singing church songs right out in public. Imagine hearing this floating over the fruits and vegetables down at the cross where my Savior died. To me, that was sheer fanaticism. The headmaster was waiting for me in town, which was gratifying. Some of my relatives were there also. My favorite niece threw her arms around me and cried, Uncle Festo, I love Jesus now. Do you love Jesus too? I grunted something and changed the subject. As an agnostic, I was quite offended. As the days passed, the situation proved worse than I had thought. People, both young and old, were caught up in a sort of religious frenzy, doing ridiculous things. Many of them had been good churchgoers for years, but this was something quite new. They would talk about Jesus in all sorts of places, and you never knew where they might burst out into song. It was infectious. It was spreading like a disease. We enlightened people. We were angry. My mother's brother, the senior chief of our district, was appro appropriately tough against such things. He was a good chief, selected by the British government as the most progressive of the sons of the former king, my grandfather. Now my uncle said, this new kind of religion is dangerous. It invades your privacy. You have nothing left. There were other unsettling aspects of it for the chief to consider. Those women who were saved no longer covered their faces before men. They spoke out in public as if they were set free from the ancient traditions. 
Even worse, the customary distinction between our tribe and the local Iru tribe was ignored by these extremists. They actually ate meals together, breaking the food taboos of hundreds of years, and in many other ways, they ignored the feelings of the revered ancestors, thereby bringing the danger of calamity upon the whole land. My uncle, the chief, felt he had to take action, and so he told his retainers that they could beat up the ones who spoke of being saved. Some of them were thrashed severely, but the beating didn't change them. And sometimes the results were the reverse of what my uncle intended. A court official would beat up a man because he talked about Jesus publicly, but when the beater went home, he couldn't sleep. By morning, he was weeping and went off to join the fanatics. Exasperated, my uncle changed his order. Do not beat them. That is dangerous. You might become like them. I was having difficulties of my own. The school where I taught was a mission school, and I was expected to attend the local church. That wouldn't have been hard, except that nearly everyone who was asked to speak or preach at that church was one of the fanatics. What they said was always dangerously personal. We were constantly bombarded with talk about the cross. It was oppressive. Actually, I knew what it was to be a young man who was tired and lonely and finding life increasingly unmanageable and confusing. I was running as far away as I could from this Jesus they talked about, determined never to surrender to him or to anyone except to myself. I was the kind of agnostic who is not interested in, in trying to prove whether or not there's a God. I ignored God and eventually said he was not there. I wished to be free. Sitting with my uncle, the chief, I could thoroughly appreciate his dilemma. However, neither of us could say that these people were total frauds. Take the matter of the cattle. We were a cattle people. To my tribe, cows were what made life worth living. By the time I was three years old, I knew the name of every one of the 120 cows, bulls, and calves on my father's farm. Some men I knew thought more of their cattle than they did of their children. So there were many things that happened that were incredible. For instance, one day, the chief was holding court and his elders were listening to his wisdom when a man arrived who was well known to be a pagan and very wealthy in cattle. His servants had eight fine cows that they were driving along with them and all the elders turned to look at them with great appreciation. The cattle baron greeted everyone and then said, Your Honor, I have come to see you. The chief answered, fine, what are these cows for? Sir, they are yours. I have brought them back to you. What do you mean they are mine? Well, sir, when I was looking after your cattle, I stole four of them when I told you that we had been raided. These four are now eight, and I have brought them to you. Who discovered this theft? Jesus did, sir. He has given me peace and told me to bring them back to you. There was dead silence in the room. There was no laughter. It was quite a shock. My uncle could see that this man was rejoicing, and all of us knew that what he had done, confessing to something like that and returning property, was impossible for a man from our tribe to do, particularly when it concerned the finest of cattle. I was hating God because the awareness of him embarrassed me continually. And though I pushed them back, my sins were dark against me and threatening. 
guilt pursued me like a hunting dog after its prey. I was a man ill at ease, young but fragmented inside. I was running headlong into self-destruction, and at the age of 19, I considered ending my life. It was not because I didn't have health or work or money or party friends. It was because the things I did have lacked any meaning. There was a hollowness inside of my life. It seemed lonely and undependable. There was a haunting sense of uncertainty. Perhaps what happened then was because I had come to the end of hope and I was looking at the possibility of suicide. One Sunday I sat in a church service. I got up and went outside absolutely in a rage. I spent that day drinking heavily at my uncle's place. Late that afternoon, I was cycling home, somewhat wobbly, when I saw a good friend of mine riding his bicycle toward me on the dusty road with a look on his face as if he were flying through the sky. He was a teacher like me, and I knew very well that he did not ordinarily glow on his face. I was surprised. My friend pulled up beside me and said breathlessly, Festo, three hours ago, Jesus became a living reality to me. I know my sins are forgiven. He had never before spoken with any enthusiasm about Jesus. Then with complete sincerity, he said, Please, Festo, I want you to forgive me, friend. And he named three specific things for which he wanted my forgiveness, related to some questionable things we had done together. He said, I am so sorry, Festo. I will no longer live like that. Jesus has given me something better. Off he went, whistling exuberantly, leaving me with my mouth open there on the road. If only he had stayed to let me argue, but he did not. When I reached my room, I knelt by my bed, struggling for words to the one in whom I no longer believe. And finally I cried, God, if you happen to be there, as my friend says, I am miserable. If you can do anything for me, then please do it now. If I'm not too far gone, please help me. Then what happened in that room? Heaven opened, and in front of me was Jesus. He was there real and crucified for me. His body, broken, was hanging on the cross, and suddenly I knew that it was my badness that did this to the king of life. It shook me. In tears, I thought I was going to hell. If he had said to me at that moment, go, I would not have complained. Somehow I thought that would be his duty as all the wretchedness, wretchedness of my life came out. But then I saw his eyes of infinite love, which were looking into mine. Could it be he who was clearly saying, this is how much I love you, Festo? I shook my head because I knew that couldn't be possible and said, no, I am your enemy. I am rebellious. I have been hating your people. How can you love me like that? Even today, I do not know the answer to that question. There is no reason in me for his love. But that day I discovered myself clasped in the father's arms. I was tattered. I was afraid, just like the younger son who went into the far country and then came to the end of himself. But why should the Father who is holy come running to hold me to his heart? I was dirty and desperate 
and he said, and, 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 and I had said and done so much against him. That love was wholly unexpected, but it filled my room, and I was convinced he is the only one who loves the unlovable. He is the only one who embraces the unembraceable. And in spite of what I was, I knew at that moment that I had been accepted by God, that I was a, a son of, of the Father, and that whatever Jesus did on the cross, it was for me. Let's pray.